Well, after many months, we've come to the end of the book of James. As I mentioned last week, Pastor Mike will be preaching next Sunday, and then we'll begin John's gospel on September 4th. This morning, though, one more, one more week in James, uh, looking back at the big picture of this letter. The sermon consists of revisiting three high-level truths about James, and then 12 main themes in James. So if your math is as good as mine, you know that's 15 points, which means we're, we're going to be going pretty quickly. My main hope in doing that this way, I have four, four things I'm after. One is to fill in a few James gaps from sermons you may have missed or are missing from your memory if you were here. Second, to look at what it means, according to James, to have genuine faith in Jesus and encourage you to do so. Number three is to recap James's description of what it means then to live out that faith. It's one thing to have it. It's another thing to live it out. And so to recap James's description of what it means to live out our faith in Jesus, encourage you to do that as well. And lastly, fourthly, to remind you of the great grace of God that is already working all of that out in those who believe. So let's pray. God, I pray now that you would use this sermon and this letter and our recap of it here to reignite or maybe even perhaps ignite for the first time our burden to follow Jesus wherever he leads and whatever it costs. And to do so in the knowledge that that's what we were made for. That's our purpose in life. That's the reason for our existence. That's the meaning, the meaning of life is to follow Jesus wherever he leads and whatever it costs. And to do so as well in the knowledge that he is more than worth it. He is the path to fullness of life, to everlasting life, to fellowship with you, to glorify you and enjoy you forever. So please, uh, may this sermon be a means to that end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so just, just said, uh, I believe there's three high-level truths uh, about the book of James that drive the letter and are good for us to keep in mind. If our aim is to take James with us, we're done preaching on it for now, but if our aim is to take it with us and continue to live in light of it, I think there's three high-level truths in particular that are good for us to keep in mind. The first is this. If I were to ask you, I wonder, what are the three high-level truths you think? Those of you who have been here, I'm guessing this first one maybe wouldn't have been on your list. Uh, and the first is this. James was Jesus' half-brother. Half in the sense that Mary was both of their moms, but Jesus uh, was not conceived by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. That's significant for two main reasons. To make sense of this letter and to live uh, in light of it, I think this is significant for two reasons. First, as everyone who has siblings know, which I think is most of us in this room, uh, you get to see your siblings in a particular light. Uh, you have a front row seat to them in a way that very few other people ever will, and there are a few secrets. I love my sister. I have one sister. I love her. She loves me. 
she uh, understands my faith in Jesus, respects it. Um, I imagine, at least in some ways, admires it. But having grown up with me, I can promise you, there is nothing that I could say or do at this point that would convince her that I was the sinless son of God. You can ask her. She'll she'll visit at some point in the near future. Her name's Carrie. Uh, Carrie, is there anything that might happen to where you would believe your brother is the sinless son of God? And she would laugh and assume you were joking and tell you not a chance. The fact that James became convinced that Jesus was the sinless son of God is a really big deal. The fact that he was so convinced that he ended up as a key leader in the early church and was martyred eventually for his faith in his brother, in Jesus, is a bigger deal still. But there's another side to this as well. I did not grow up as a Christian. It wasn't until college that I became one. And I remember reading the Bible for the first time and being surprised by this kind of thing, what I'm about to say. It just... It's not what I expected to read. The, the second reason this is significant, that James was Jesus' brother, uh, is the fact that he did not believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah at first. If you go to John's Gospel, we'll get to this eventually, in chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us that not even his brothers, that is not even Jesus' brothers at that time, he was undergoing a lot of Jesus was undergoing a lot of persecution, and it says not even his brothers believed in him then. We're not told why they didn't believe, what exactly it was. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable claim to make, of course, but we're not told why they didn't believe. But we are told that it was only after Jesus' resurrection that James, the author of this letter, leader in the early church, martyr to the faith, became convinced of who Jesus really was. And this is significant because it's not the kind of thing you'd lie about if you were trying to pull a fast one. To, to, to read this, this is not the kind of thing if your goal was to dupe people. You, you'd maybe sort of just leave this part out. The honest, often unflattering portrayal of key figures in the Bible is part of what makes it so believable. This isn't stuff you make up and include in the story if you want to trick someone. The first big truth about James that I want you to lock in on and remember is that it was written by Jesus' brother. Second, second big truth is the main thrust of the entire letter. Now, the whole Bible is one big story that God gives us to reveal to us who he is, who we are, and what it means to live as he intended, in the main contribution, James has a number of things, but the main contribution that James gives us to that, that whole idea is this. It is a charge for Christians to obey God's word, not merely listen to it, to be not hearers only, but doers also. So hearing God's word is necessary, but not sufficient. It is necessary because, as I just said, we can't know who God is. We can't know truly who we are or what God requires of us apart from God revealing those things from us. The Bible is necessary. It's necessary that we hear it to know these things, but that's not sufficient. God reveals these things to us, not just to fill our minds with facts, but to transform us 
through them. He gives them to us, not merely to store up, but to make us different people because of it. For those reasons, James wrote, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You cannot rightly understand James, this letter, much less live in light of it, if you don't understand that his primary aim is to remind Christians, his readers, that God's people do what the Bible says. They don't merely hear it, Grace. They don't merely hear it. You're hearing it right now. You don't merely hear it. You don't merely study it. You don't merely like it. And you don't even merely believe it. You live it. And that leads nicely and neatly into the final big truth. And that's this. James is a book of commands. It is a book of commands. In terms of command density, if you're a, a grammarian, you know that, uh, that, uh, um, oh, great. <laughs> an imperative. There we go. An imperative or a command. Uh, there are between 55 and 61 imperatives. There's 61 imperatives, but some of them are sort of hypothetical situations. But there's, depending on how you count, between 55 and 61 imperatives in James. It is the most imperative, command dense book in the entire Bible. Command per word, imperative per word. It's the most command-dense book in the Bible. That's a lot of hearing to do and a lot of instructions to obey. Before we turn them into a checklist, though, like we usually do, unfortunately. Before we do that, though, I I want to give you just a few things to keep in mind from this. Big truth, number three, James is a book of commands, but they're commands in a certain sense. Four things. Number one, it is good to obey. The first thing James, in his many commands, his command-dense letter, helps us to see that it is good to obey. To be a Christian is to acknowledge that Jesus is king. Kylie said that in her testimony really well. That is why James began his letter by describing himself. The opening words of the letter are, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is more, as I'm about to explain, to obedience for James, but there is not less. Jesus is king. As king, he has the right to tell us what we should do, and it's good for us to do it. All right, it's good to obey. Number two, James is a book of commands, and obedience to them is a mature Christian's highest desire because we know it is the path to fullness of life and joy. Okay, so there's not less than the fact that Jesus is king and he has the right to command us and so we should obey, but there is more and this is part of the more. Obedience is a mature Christian's highest desire because we know that it is the path to fullness of life and joy. James means his readers to obey because Jesus is king. We just saw that. But James's readers, Grace, were suffering in significant ways because of their obedience. If you read any of James, you can see this quickly. They were suffering because of their obedience. But wait a minute. You just said, Pastor Dave, obedience to Jesus is the path to fullness of life and joy. And now you're saying they suffered greatly for their obedience? That doesn't make sense. It does, though. 
They were suffering because of their obedience. And so what we might expect, if James gives us the path of obedience through or to joy, we might expect James to give us a few tips, to give his readers a few tips. All right, here's how you get out of that stuff. You're in it, but it's because you're doing it wrong. Like you're obeying, but you got to tweak your obedience. We might expect James in his letter to give his readers a few tips to minimize, mitigate, or get out from their suffering, but he doesn't do that. You know this if you were here in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, don't do that. Instead, count those things as all joy. Christians must obey, but we do so in full assurance that every command of Jesus is a description to the one and only path of pleasures forevermore. Whether the path is immediately painful or joyful, it leads to pleasures forevermore. Number three, no amount of obedience will ever make us right with God. You got to hear that when you understand James's commands. The between 55 and 61 of them, no amount of obedience to them or the rest of the commands in the Bible total will ever make us right with God. He was emphatic about that in the middle of chapter two. If we wish to be acceptable to God based on our obedience, we have to obey perfectly every command every time. If that's your hope is to obey enough or to be good enough to be acceptable to God, you have to keep the whole of the law perfectly every time. That's what James says. Of course, none of us can do that, which is why Jesus came, because he could and did on our behalf. Christians obey because God's favor is already upon us, not in order to get the favor of God. And that leads us to the last part of this last big truth. This is my favorite thing in James. I I hope you can appreciate this as well. Every command, this is the thing to write down, by the way. If you're a writer, downer, this is it. Every command of God is ultimately a description of what Jesus did for us and what God is doing in us if our hope is in Christ. That's awesome. Every one of these 55 to 61 commands that James gives us is ultimately a a description of what Jesus already did for us and what God is already doing in us. This is the heart of the commands of James and the heart of the commands of the Bible. It's it's at the heart of an understanding of genuine Christian obedience. Every call to obedience is a reminder that Jesus already obeyed on our behalf perfectly because we couldn't. And every call to obedience is a promise that God is already working that thing out in us. That's awesome. All right. To really appreciate then and live in light of this letter, to take it with us since we're moving on from it, we need to begin by getting our head around a couple of these big truths that this letter is built upon. Again, all the, the three of them are that Jesus or James was Jesus' brother. The main theme in the whole letter is not just listening to God's word. Listen, but don't just listen. Obey also. And thirdly, that the commands of James are ultimately descriptions of the character of Jesus and the grace of God in us. And so from there, 12, we're flying, right? That's three already. Just 12 more to go. 12 main themes in James. You ready? Buckle up. Hang on. Here we go. My strong encouragement, by the way, is to pick one or two. You're not going to be able to remember all all 12. Pick one or two that God seems to be burdening you with and hang on to that more tightly still. Turn this to prayer. Share this with in your discipleship group. But here, here we go. Number one, God uses every trial in a Christian's life 
as an instrument for our growth and godliness. Big theme in James. Every trial is an instrument of God for our growth and godliness. He rewards those who remain faithful through trials with the crown of life, James says. For those reasons, as we just saw, we ought to consider every trial that we endure in faith as all joy. That is not to say, though, that God uses trials to tempt people. James really wants his readers to understand that. God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one, James wrote. Therefore, when we suffer or sick, we pray, entrusting both to God who reigns over them all for his glory and our good. So coming to truly believe, trust, delight, and put that principle into practice, grace, will make more of a difference in our lives than almost anything else. We live in a world, as you know, that is marred by sin. That means we live in a world where suffering is inevitable. You can't create a system where you won't suffer. Therefore, if we are to receive God's promises regarding suffering, the ones James gives us, we will be able to navigate them in a manner that truly stands out, showing the unique power of the gospel to transform us. Number two, God's people need wisdom to navigate this world. We need wisdom. God has all wisdom, and God delights to give us that wisdom when we seek it from him. True wisdom, James says, comes from above, and it produces good conduct. How do you know if it's truly wise, what you have? It produces good conduct, and even tells us what that good conduct looks like. It is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, producing even a harvest of righteousness. On the other hand, fake wisdom, wisdom that... something that shows itself or presents itself as wisdom, but is really folly, James says, comes from demons and produces bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting and falsehoods, disorder and vile practice. James wanted his readers to know that there's no comparison between the two. One leads leads to life and joy and the other to death and destruction. James calls us to know and pursue wisdom, the wisdom that is from above. Third, temptation to sin. This is another big one. You're walking around, and all of a sudden you desire to do something that you know isn't pleasing to God. Where does that come from? James says temptation to sin comes to Christians when the lingering effects of our old sin nature well up inside of us. Let me say the same thing in a different way. Temptation comes when something deep in us, left over from Adam, produces things that it cannot truly deliver or or promises things that it cannot truly deliver and delivers things we wouldn't want if it spoke plainly about them. That is especially true, James wrote, with regard to, to our fights among one another, our sinful fights and quarrels among Christians. When we love things more than people, we'll be willing to harm others to get what we want from them. The main point here is that while our sins have been entirely paid for by grace through faith in Jesus, their effects will not be entirely driven from us until heaven. If we're not careful, therefore, we'll give in to their wicked, lying enticements instead of holding fast to the promises of God. If you're going to take James with you, this is a good good thing to take. James helps us with this. Number four, God only gives good gifts to his people. And only God gives good gifts. 
So let me say that again. God only gives good gifts to those who are trusting in him, and truly good gifts only come from God. So let me clarify. That's not to say that hard things don't happen to Christians. We just saw that. That is not to say that non-Christians don't often mean well. And it is not to say that Christians don't do genuine good at times. That is to say, though, that everything that God does, painful or pleasant, is good for those who love him in the highest sense. As we saw from the very first point, even the most severe trials we might face are good gifts and that they produce God's sanctifying grace. At the same time, though, remember this grace. God alone is truly good. All subsequent goodness comes through us from him. We cannot generate our own goodness. We can merely be conduits from the goodness of God to others. That's that's a big part of our goal on this earth, is to receive the goodness of God that it might flow through us to other people. That's a really important theme for James. The main, again, the idea here is that all good things ultimately flow from God. And, and because of that, we might look to God for that which only he can provide for us and for others. Number five, godly people, Pastor Dave, listen most. <laughs> All right? Godly people, Pastor Dave, listen first and most. They don't talk first, Pastor Dave. They listen first and most. We're slow to speak, Pastor Dave. We're slower still to anger. And when we do speak, God means us to be very, very careful with our words. This is true for every Christian, but James is emphatic, Pastor Dave, about those who are teachers. Our words, we say more words. The words carry more weight. They have the potential for a greater effect. And so teachers especially are first to listen most to listen, slow to speak, slower to anger in our speech. Unchecked, James says that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. He commands his readers, therefore, not to speak evil against one another. Above all, he says, when you do speak, speak plainly. Don't try to trick people. Don't lie. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be unscrupulously ambiguous. Don't don't say something so that you mean to trick somebody, but you can't actually be prosecuted in a court of law because you were slippery enough. And, of course, don't be intentionally false. The way he lands this plane is he says, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. The bottom line for James is that he knows and teaches us that our words flow from our hearts. You would have heard this from Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. To hang on to this principle in James or this theme in James, therefore, means understanding that we ought to grab. A word comes to your mouth. It's right on your tongue. You're about to say it. Grab it. Hold on to it. Don't let it out yet. Just get a hold of it. Hang on to it and do two things. First, this word that's about to fly out would have if you hadn't caught it. First, check to see what kind of heart produced it. What part of your heart produced that word that was about to come out? And second, prayerfully swallow every word back down that comes from something rotten in your heart and only let those out that flow from love. 
Six, godly people continually work to put off sin and to put on righteousness. Off sin, on righteousness, James says. We see that in chapter 1, verse 21, and other passages, but maybe most clearly in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, not to sin, not to evil, but to God. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, to the righteousness of God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched where you find sin and mourn and weep when you don't repent. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom if you don't do this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then he will exalt you. As I mentioned earlier, no person can earn God's favor by sufficient obedience or sufficient sin fighting. In other words, the principle is godly people continually work to put off sin and unrighteousness, but no one can do that enough to earn God's favor. But at the same time, no one can claim to have God's favor if we're not growing in our hatred for sin and putting on of righteousness. As we leave James then, let's take with us the reminder that of the sinfulness and destructiveness of sin. And therein, let's take with us a fresh determination to work to put it off wherever we find it and put on what's good. Number seven, we're again, we're cooking, seven to 12. James tells us that the greatest form of Christian obedience, you say, okay, well, 55, of, or 55 to 61 commands plus all the rest of the ones in the Bible, of all of these acts of obedience, which ones rise to the top for Christians? Like, I, I don't know, if I were going to give myself to one today, what would it be? Well, James tells us. James tells us that the greatest form of Christian obedience, the kind that most honors to God, that is most honoring to God, the thing that he wants us to obey most, to hear and obey most, is the charge to care for the most vulnerable. To look around, to see who is most vulnerable, least able to to defend themselves, least able to provide for themselves, most able to be taken advantage of, James says, of all the commands, the one that matters the most, the kind that's most pleasing to God when we obey, is the the charge, the command to care for the most vulnerable, and especially orphans and widows, he says. James is emphatic along those same lines that we we must not be a people who show favoritism. Ungodly people, people who are not obeying, people who are not being transformed by the grace of God, Listen, especially kids, especially teenagers, this is a big deal. Ungodly people evaluate others based on external factors like appearance and wealth. Ungodly people consider others in light of the benefit you think they can provide to you. But godly people love. We love indiscriminately. We especially indiscriminately love the poor and the needy. Not because they're worthy but because God loves us apart from any worthiness in us. To love the most vulnerable, to defend the most vulnerable, is another picture, like baptism, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were vulnerable spiritually. We were poor and we were needy spiritually. And in that condition, God loved us. And so when we love others in that way, we give a picture of the gospel. 
James has helped the church, even our church, see the simple goodness of foster care and adoption more than any other book in the Bible. I don't know if there's another verse in the Bible besides 127, James 127, that has sent more people into the lives of vulnerable children anywhere in the world throughout the history of the world than this, these few words in one verse. I can't imagine how many kids and families have been blessed by the church throughout history simply because of James 127. So even as we leave James, let's continue to allow, allow it to drive us towards care for the most vulnerable. Number eight, faith without works is dead. You've heard this several different times in different ways already, but faith apart from works is dead. This is tied to the main thrust of the whole letter, be not hearers only, but doers also. It's tied to that, but it's also a bit more specific. Be not hearers only is a charge for Christians who've grown lax in our obedience. This teaching, that faith by itself, if it does not produce obedience to Jesus, is dead, addresses the very nature of salvation. In essence, James taught here that genuine salvation always produces obedience. Always. So let me say that a little bit differently. In other words, this is the short passage in James indirectly answers a question that all of us should be asking. There's, there's two most important questions in the world. Number one is, how do I get reconciled with God? And the answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And here's the second most important question you can ask. How do I know if I have that? <laughs> if, if I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, how do I know if I've got that? If that's my only hope, how do I know if that's true in me or if it's dead? How's that happen? And James gives us, James gives us the answer. He says, we know, second question, we know the answer to the first question. We know by the resulting change in our affections and our attitudes and from those our actions. Where those things are not increasingly becoming more like Jesus, we do not have good reason, James says, to believe that our faith is genuine. Our claims are dead, he would say. And all of this is because the grace of God that results in genuine faith, genuine conversion, genuine hope in Jesus, also results in genuine transformation, genuine sanctification every single time. Now, the order of our sanctification, the timing, and the rate may vary, but the fact of our sanctification won't. So, Grace, please take this principle with you. Thank God for the good fruit you see in yourself and others and the assurance of salvation that that brings. And where that fruit is sparse or you're having trouble finding it, turn to God in humility, prayerfulness, and faith. Find someone to pray with you and work through this with you. Remember the promises of God and walk in the Spirit's power. Number nine, worldliness or love for the things of the world first and godliness, love for God first, are incompatible. James earnestly wanted his readers to know that everyone has a greatest love. All of you in this room have something that you love the most. Every one of us. You can't not. We all have a greatest love. And the only options, you only have two options for what that is. It's either God or something that God made. That's it. Every one of us has a greatest love. And for every one of us, it's either God or something that was made by God. 
To love the things that God made most, James says, is to be friends of the world and enemies of God. If your answer is the second, you love something God made the most, you are a friend of the world and an enemy of God. To love God most is to be friends with God and in a place to rightly love the things of the world, including the people of the world, the things God made. Along these lines, James also told his readers that it is folly to trust in the things God made, especially wealth. The things God has made and money in general, their value and protection always fade and eventually fail. Money, the, the satisfaction, protection, whatever you're going to it for, it always fades and eventually fails. They always eventually corrode and rot, James says. Whether now in repentance or in eternity and condemnation, all who have put their trust in some form of financial security or in security in something of this world will weep and howl. Grace, the enticement of the world often seems innocuous, not harmful and even desirable. James reminds us that this is a lie. Anything that presents itself as above God, equal to God, or even within a billion miles of God in its ability to satisfy, to bless, to help, to heal, is a lie. James repeatedly pleads with us to remember this, that we might not be duped. Take this with you, Grace. Number 10, God's in charge. James says, God's in charge. If you want to take this letter with you or some portion of it, remember that God is in charge. That is, he is always actively governing the universe. Because he governs in fairly predictable ways, we saw a few weeks ago, there is discernible order. Science works, and making plans is often wise. But rightly living in a world governed by God means not merely functioning based on the patterns we can discern, and discover in his governance, it also means trusting in God, not the rhythms that he made. James leaves no room for functional deism, or as we saw, practical atheism. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Therefore, you ought to say as you make your plans and do your science and discern order, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that, or atoms will hold together like this or like that, or they'll split apart like this or like that. Everything else is boasting, arrogant, and evil, he says in chapter 4, verse 16. Take that with you as well, Grace. Let's resist the ever-present temptation to trust in God's ordering rather than the God who is the orderer, who orders. James gives us help. Two more. Christian love looks different than the love of the world. In the eyes of most, love means making a big deal out of me. So if I want to feel loved by you, in my mind, oftentimes that means you you make a big deal out of me. You, you give me compliments and tell me how special I am. You know that. Think about it. You know that. Similarly, when we say we love someone else, we usually mean we like the way they make us feel. They make a big deal out of us. They make us feel good or special. In other words, the normal understanding of love is self-centered and selfish. The kind of love God has for the world, though, and the kind of love that he calls for us to have as well, that is to say true love, is different. Its aim is always for the greatest good of someone else. To say that I love you means that I am after your greatest good, even at the cost of my life. 
I will suffer and serve and lay my life down in order to bring to you what's best. Not necessarily what you think is best or what you want most. Not necessarily even what I think is best or want for you the most. But what is truly best? That begs the question, of course, of what is truly best. And the answer, in the biggest sense, is God. All of God. God is the greatest thing for all things. Therefore, to love, James says, in its fullest sense, always points people first and most to God through Jesus Christ. It also takes specific forms as well. We point people to God in specific ways also, namely the ways God tells us to. And one really counterintuitive one that we saw last week was in helping people to see their sin. The basic argument is this. If God is what we need most and sin is by definition that which keeps us from God, the most loving thing you can do is help people to see their sin. That is to say, that which is keeping them from what they were made for. The thing that is best for them. So I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. But I do want to remind you that taking James with you means loving one another as God defines love. Not as you or someone else does. Loving others means laying your life down to bring them what they need most. I'm so thankful that our church does that in so many ways. May we continue and grow in that as well. Lastly, finally, number 12. The last big theme in James is that Jesus is coming back and will set all things right. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Grace Church, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James, James, wanted his readers to understand that in the hardships of life and the things that were difficult and the suffering and the persecution that comes from obedience, remember in all of that that Jesus is returning and will set all things right. He's already secured that perfectly in the cross and in the resurrection, and he is coming back to make it finally and fully true. In this knowledge, James called people to be patient and gracious in our trials and difficulties We are to be willing to endure mistreatment and the knowledge that God will make all things right. Grace, get this. In a world that's clamoring about justice right now but knows nothing about true justice, true and complete justice will prevail in the end. Not one single act of injustice will be undealt with and unrighted. This will happen finally and fully when Jesus returns. And so in that hope, and trust in that promise, we can live today in a kind of freedom and hope that looks strange to those who do not know the gospel. So there you go, Grace. Uh, one year's worth of sermons in like 35 minutes. James is yet another expression of God's kindness. That's what this is. It's another description of his grace and another reminder of our need for that which Jesus alone can provide. To rightly receive this, three more sentences, land in the plane. To rightly receive James is to be amazed by the goodness of God, to trust in his transforming power inside of us, and to give ourselves to living as he made us to, in fullness of life, or as Jesus called it, abundance of life. For James's readers, as for us, this, this, meant, this is meant to be done within a Christian community. He wrote this to a group of saints, many of whom were gathered together. And for the glory of God, what a gift this is. May we receive it with all the thankfulness and gladness and earnestness and hope that it offers. That is, may we, by God's grace, be doers of the word in every way and faith and not hearers only.